Welcome to FEPS Talks, the podcast series of the Foundation for European Progressive Studies. Find out more about us on feps-europe.eu. Hello, this is FEPS Talks, the podcast series of the Foundation for European Progressive Studies from Brussels. My name is Laszlo Ander, I'm the Secretary General of FEPS. And um, this is another episode of uh, FEPS Talks with a distinguished guest from Canada, which is not very common. Uh, most of our guests are from different European countries, sometimes from the so-called Brussels bubble. But Professor Margarita Mendel is uh, connecting with us uh, from Montreal. She's a distinguished professor emeritus at the School of Community and Public Affairs at uh, Concordia University. Uh, Margie, welcome to our program. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Uh, let me introduce you briefly to our listeners. I think uh, we can say that we have um, a three decades long collaboration and even friendship because we have a shared interest in the legacy of Karl Polanyi, a famous social scientist of Hungarian um, uh, origin. But uh, we also have uh, another shared interest, which um, also dates back to some time, which is about developing, promoting what we call the social economy. And this is primarily what um, I wanted to talk with you about. You have been very active in Canada to develop the practice, to some extent also the legislation about uh, the social economy, you have been working with a variety of international organizations, including in Europe, the OECD, the European Commission, the Global Social Economy Forum. And more recently, you have been working with the ILO, the International Labour Organization, on the same issues. So apart from your teaching in Canada about social innovation and uh, issues like economic democracy, which must be a fascinating course. You also have been a practitioner of the social economy and the policies surrounding it. And I thought that this would be now a very timely conversation because uh, you know, the European progressives are now approaching an election period when the new frontiers of the social agenda would need to be defined again. And um, I always thought that um, the social economy is sometimes an ignored, sometimes an underdeveloped uh, area for European policy on which we could do more. We could do much more. And um, you are not only experienced in Canada, but also you have an overview of the, the European and um, the American experience as well. Maybe we could start uh, with some important examples of your personal involvement in the work on the social economy, and then we could do some transatlantic cooperation afterwards. Okay, there's a lot to say. <laughs> Thank you for that broad, those broad brushstrokes. Uh, there's a great deal to say. In my own case, I want to go back just briefly to the 1980s and the recession, because it was very formative in the development of the social economy in Quebec. And at the time, Montreal uh, was the cradle of industrialization uh, in Canada. 
and it then appeared to be also the graveyard in the early 1980s, followed following you know a long period of deindustrialization and closure of factories and and many layoffs uh, and and so on and so forth. What was very interesting at the time was that many of these neighborhoods um, where this deindustrialization or the industrialization and deindustrialization were taking place were very cohesive, and most people living in these neighborhoods worked for these large factories. And suddenly, there was this devastation of of closures and and job losses. I became involved as a professor with my students, not as a voyeur to watch, you know, to observe disaster, but to say to see what could be done by way of a, a transition or a transformation for these neighborhoods that were really devastated. And so we worked very closely, uh, and I think this was such an innovation, we worked very closely with the, the businesses that were going to close, with the labor movement, the union, most of these businesses had a large number of employees and they were unionized, but with social movements, with community actors, basically not to save a dying industry, but to work towards a transition because the, I mean, I'm an economist, Laszlo, you are as well. And, and you know, the, the trend at the time was to say, well, you know, this is history and move on and people will leave the neighborhood and find jobs elsewhere. And uh, the neighborhood will become a museum of, of, you know, industrial Canada that no longer exists. Well, we rejected that. And uh, to be very brief, we formed what became known as community economic development corporations, which were subsequently supported by government. And it was an economic development model. It was a model of economic democracy, really, because it brought together all these stakeholders to say, what can we do? Uh, And in some cases, we were able to save one or two um, factories from closure. And what this demonstrated was the importance of dialogue, was the importance of negotiation, was the importance of collaboration, and the importance of government at the time supporting but taking a back seat. The agenda was really written by citizens. So this was really formative uh, in the in the 1980s and very, very successful. And these experiences um, mushroomed uh, across Quebec. And in the 1990s, there were over 100 uh, local development centers that were established. It's a sad story because many of these no longer exist. And I'll leave that for after. I'm just giving you this sort of background because I think what distinguishes the social economy in Quebec, or what we now call the social and solidarity economy, is that we've always thought beyond the actual enterprises, the actual collectively owned enterprises, which are at the heart of the social economy, the cooperatives and the not-for-profit social enterprises and so on. We've always thought of the social economy as a model of development. So we needed to ground ourselves in in a place-based uh, strategy. Uh, look at the the need for um, development tools to to allow the social economy to thrive, to grow, to thrive, and to be territorially rooted. So, if we fast forward to 1995, the government that was in power at the time was also faced with a fiscal crisis and a high level of unemployment. And I'll be brief here, but in Quebec, there was always a tradition of what we call concertation, concertation, which is not an mm-hmm. English word, but it's different from the social democracy, institutionalized social democracy model, because this is sort of case by case where 
times of crisis, the labor movement, the business community and government come together to say what is to be done. And they do this together. For the first time in 1995, the then premier of Quebec invited what he called the community sector to participate in this conversation. Mm -hmm. And they created something called the Task Force on the Social Economy, the Chantier de l'Economie Sociale, Mm -hmm. and gave the Chantier two years to demonstrate how the community sector could also participate in a collective project to address this economic crisis of deficit, the need to reduce the deficit, and and also to uh, address unemployment. They were given a challenge to create 20,000 jobs. Uh, They exceeded that that objective um, way beyond the 20,000 jobs that were created in, in new sectors. And in 1999, very, very cleverly, those who were working in this or on this agenda said we had to separate ourselves from government and create a nonprofit entity called the Chantier de l'Economie Sociale so that we could take this work forward and not be reliant on a particular party in power, a particular government agenda. And this is now 25 years later, and the Chantier de l'Economie Sociale is not only exists, uh, it's it's a remarkable story um, with its ebbs and flows of successes and challenges and so on, but it is institutionalized, it exists, and we remain very committed to this notion of a model of economic democracy without in any way, shape or form minimizing the role that collective enterprises play which are at the heart and core of the the social economy. I mean, I could go on. It's a really interesting story. I'll stop here. Maybe you could, if you wish to. Indeed. uh, I have two questions um, about um, your introduction. One is um, whether this model, which you developed in the 80s and the 90s, spread to other parts of Canada. Did it inspire other people in Canada. And then, obviously, I wanted to ask you about, let's say, the transatlantic comparison, um, how this tradition which you developed in Quebec would compare to European traditions of the social economy and the cooperative movement, whichever you want to start with. Well, as far let me start with my own country. I'll start with Canada. The, the, the short answer is, is no. It did not spread to the rest of Canada. But that's not to say that there were not other very interesting and inspiring initiatives that were going on across the country. The vocabulary was very different. In English, don't forget, Quebec is is a small French-speaking province that exists in this very large North American English-speaking sea. And that's important because it's not, this isn't a political statement. It's not with respect to whether, you know, one is a sovereignist or, or a federalist. There is a glue. There is there there is a cohesion in in Quebec, which is unique because of this fact of it being a, a French speaking a French speaking province, which is probably the reason why we're able to work collectively across uh, social movements with the business community, with the labor movement, and mm. and with government. This is not the case in other parts of the country. That said, uh, community economic development initiatives exist throughout uh, Canada, from from coast to coast. We had a short period where we received some funding, competitive funding. These were academic grants that a group of professors from across the country successfully uh, applied for, um, where we developed a social economy agenda for for the country. It is not deeply rooted. There is no equivalent to the Chantier in, in other parts of the country. I should mention that we had a brief 
very uh, inspiring moment for Canada, and that was from 2003 to 2006, uh, when Paul Martin was the Prime Minister of Canada, and he was a strong supporter of the social economy, and he was very eager to make this a Canadian agenda. Uh, sadly, his um, tenure as, as Prime Minister was short-lived, and this this agenda was dropped. Um, and since then, we have had a variety of experiences. Most recently, with the current government in power, we just launched um, what is called a social finance and social innovation fund of $800 million, which is quite significant. But I should tell you, it took four years to get this off the ground. And it is really in Quebec that this is flying and moving much faster because we are we have these uh, these roots that now go back, you know, to the experiences in in the 1980s and in the 1990s. So uh, it, that's a long answer to your short question, but it's it's a variegated, uh, you know, sort of portrait uh, in in Canada. We are much closer to a European um, definition or uh, social mm-hmm. economy identity with the history of the cooperative movement and also the history of we participated together in that large forum on social business and you recall that there was lots of discussion and debate around uh, whether this should be an anglo-american uh, vision of social business or whether it should be much more of a european um, vision of social business which was a child of the history of the cooperative movement and, and the social economy so the affinity for Quebec is closer to Europe uh, and, and to experiences in, in other parts of the world, in, in the global south, in Latin America and Africa. We have exported a lot of our experience, but we've also imported a lot of experience from different parts of the world. Um, mm-hmm. Our solidarity cooperatives, for example, are a variant of the social cooperatives that were created in, in Italy. Um, and and we, I can give you examples of collective kitchens, which were which in Quebec resemble very much the collective kitchens in Peru. So we really are an amalgam of, of initiatives that we learn from and then we, we do not adopt, we adapt. What I find fascinating is that, you know, for Quebec, uh, for so long, myself, my colleagues, my academic colleagues, my practitioner colleagues traveled uh, to Europe and other parts of the world because Quebec was so unique in its approach uh, and adoption of a social economy model. As I sit here um, in Montreal and as I've traveled, what is happening in Europe, um, despite your introductory uh, comments of it being ignored or perhaps underdeveloped, maybe because my focus is so much on the social solidarity economy, mm-hmm. I find that there has been such a rapid increase in attention to and, and policy initiatives on the European front and that we are in a much more of a catch-up mode here and it's not a competition. Mm-hmm. It's just that we leverage each other's experiences. When things go well for you, we bring them mm-hmm. home and demonstrate to our governments why it's succeeding in Belgium or Spain or Italy and why you know we must uh, similarly adopt mm-hmm. um, measures and vice versa. We have brought our experiences to bear on on, uh, on yours uh, in Europe. I mean, the European Union Action Plan, you know, that was passed in, in, in 2021, I mean, we have no equivalent at the federal mm-hmm. level here. Of course, you know, here I would be interviewing you and saying, well, what does all this mean in terms of adoption and implementation? Uh, I mean, Europe is a big continent. What is happening at the, at the country level? I watch as closely as I can. I mean, Spain recently um, rein, reinstated a ministry for, uh, or a minister for social economy. 
there is legislation, framework legislation in many European countries. We have framework legislation uh, in Quebec. And of course, we have the United Nations uh, resolution that was just passed this spring on the social and solidarity economy. That took 10 years. I mean, that's 10 years of, of hard work. And it, it was the founding of the United Nations Task Force on the Social and Solidarity Economy at, in 2013, which was also a very important moment. If we fast forward 10 years later, that resolution uh, was was uh, finally uh, adopted. We sit here, and I think what is um, unique for us, and, and I'm now talking about Quebec rather than Canada, is that we are very rooted in civil society. There is a movement, there's a social economy movement, which is strong, and it exists across Quebec. It's not centralized. The chantier exists in Montreal, but there are many chantiers that are, are that exist throughout the, throughout the province. If we only relied on government policy initiatives, I don't think our story would be the same as it is as it is mm-hmm. today. It is thanks to the ingenuity, the the innovative innovative initiatives, uh, the tenacity, um, the guts, mm-hmm. the really the, the the guts and courage of uh, many men and women um, and young people that are involved, many young people in the social economy that it is um, exists that it's as successful today as it is because we do not have the same government support as we did. I'd say, you know, a decade ago or 15 or 20 years ago. So I watch what is happening in Europe to some extent with envy, uh, not because I think it's easy and I understand that the implementation uh, in each country is a challenge, but symbolically, it's very significant. And these symbols are important because it means that this is on the agenda, even if we know that it is not at the center of European Union politics. We know that. And we also know what the environment is in many European countries uh, at the moment, which would be not terribly favorable to, to the social economy. I think I would need to explain my question further because I very much, uh, very well understand your point that several European countries are quite advanced with maintaining a cooperative movement, having supportive legislation, which in my view is a sign that most of the Europeans insist on a model which we call a social market economy in which you know the social sector uh, should have a strong role. And it should represent a strong leg of the economic system. But why was I saying that for me at the European level, it has remained somewhat marginal? You remember we both attended a conference in Strasbourg exactly 10 years ago. At that time, I think we expected that in a kind of reconstruction of the European business model after the great crisis, there would be a more central role for the social economy. And that has, in my view, at least two dimensions uh, or two fields. One is finance, where a social sector could play a greater role with you know, cooperative banking and microfinance and other forms of uh, you know, not-for-profit or not necessarily for you know, bonus-oriented uh, financial um, uh, operations and, and models. And the other one is where there's a lot more talk today, which is industrial policy, uh, where I think um, your your Quebec example should be particularly relevant because Europe is struggling with the same. Now there is a lot of talk about uh, the need for a new industrial policy in Europe, but still very few people connecting this with the opportunities 
the social economy would provide. That, that's why I was saying that if you look at it from this perspective, to have a, a new model of finance or a new industrial policy, maybe the social economy is still an underdeveloped area. Um, what we always said from the beginning was that the social economy was not only the social sector. It was very important that the social sector be recognized for its contribution to the economy. It employs thousands of people. In the initial phase when the chantier was created in 1996, there were three sectors that were identified. One was daycare, the other was home care, and the third was what we would now call environmental sector. At the time, we, we referred to it as resource as, as resources. In the daycare se sector, for example, is the fourth largest employer in Quebec. So we're talking about a, a significant contribution to the economy through multiplier effects and through purchasing power and, and so on. But we have fought very hard and successfully to say two things. One, we are not, the social economy economy is not to, there to manage poverty or to only deal with poverty reduction. A, a macroeconomic agenda must deal with poverty reduction strategies. Not that this is not the, so the responsibility of the social economy, um, that it was beyond the social sector and that collectively owned enterprises exist across all sectors, whether it's finance, uh, daycare, home care, IT, um, manufacturing, you name it. You know, we could say it's a parallel economy. All these sectors that you see in the private economy, in the market economy, exist in the social economy as well. My impression, certainly if you look at the clauses uh, in the United Nations resolution on the social economy or on the uh, ILO resolution that was adopted, you know, this was a 2023 was a big, a big year of adoption of, of resolutions and, and, and recommendations. It was the OECD uh, recommendations on social event innovation, the ILO uh, resolution and the United Nations. They uh, all address the social and solidarity economy broadly. The question is, what's happening on the ground, you know, within Europe, within the countries that are part of the European Union or within the United Nations or the members of, of, the, of the United Nations communities? But these documents understand that the question of ownership and governance, which underlie the social and solidarity economy, have a demonstrated capacity to address the SDGs, uh, for example, because this is the sort of mot de jour. I mean, is where does the capacity lie to successfully address the SDGs? I mean, 2030 is only a few years, six years, uh, six years away. That's not a very long time uh, to meet, you know, the objectives of, of that very broad agenda. And so you're right, you know, we are not the World Economic Forum, but I should say there was a meeting of, of the United Nations Task Force on the Social Solidarity Economy here in, in Montreal in October, and there were people there from the World, Economy, World Economic Forum. So there's, you know, when things work, um, you have, you know, new friends, as, <laughs> as, as one would say. I don't, you know, we could get into a whole discussion on, on the ideological differences, which are obvious, but I think what we have proof of is that governance and ownership matters, particularly the issue of, of governance and the survival rate and the, the, the successful you know, operations of not all, but most cooperatives and not-for-profit uh, social enterprises, their uh, bankruptcy rate, you know, within their first five years of existence, and we've gone through really rough, rough times. I mean, 
just the last three years have been unprecedentedly rough. The survival rate of the social uh, social economy or social and solidarity economy entities, nonprofit and, and cooperative, has been much greater than the private sector. They have likewise uh, in 2008 and 2009. Uh, you raise finance, um, you know, the credit unions and, and again, not all, but the uh, social economy financial sector did not go belly up as quickly as as many of the you know the, the financial institutions in, in the private economy. Yes. And so I, you know, you come back to finance. When when we developed our vision of the social economy, we understood immediately that we needed development tools. And finance was a crit access to finance, access to capital was critical. And we have a whole range of investment tools that we have developed over the last 25 years. Um, within Europe, I mean, we work very closely with different organizations like with the Federation of Ethical Banks, um, mm-hmm. FBEA, you know, across Europe uh, with similar uh, credit unions and ethical banks and social finance institutions in the global south. All of these initiatives always run the risk of being captured when they're successful. And I, uh, I'm not a cynic, but I, I do think that the whole trend today in impact investing, for example, mm-hmm. is a form of capture of what we have done and what we have tried to do in developing financial tools uh, for the, the social and solidarity economy, because all the financial tools, investment uh, funds that exist have responded explicitly to the needs of social economy enterprises and organizations. When we realized that there was just too much short-term capital available and that we needed to have access to long-term capital, how do you create long-term capital for cooperatives when there isn't an equity issue Mm -hmm. involved? We we invented a patient capital tool um, which you know does not involve ownership, but it allows for long-term investment possibilities for investors. What happened with the surge in impact investing was that it's detached. It's not connected directly to the needs of the enterprises that it's trying to serve. It's, it's an objective uh, with capital that is floating uh, and large amounts of capital that are available, that is available without having the, you know, it's, if you were, if we were teaching our students, it would be, you know, supply chasing demand. I mean, there's, there isn't the demand, which is demonstrating a need for capital and a need for customized capital. So the impact investing model the social uh, impact bonds, all these very uh, contemporary and trendy tools, I think have to be nuanced. You know, are these forms of, you know, responding to the financial crisis in 2008, 2009 and capital flowing, you know, from private financial institutions into into this sort of social finance sector. A lot of it, I think, is that is the case. Uh, in the case of social impact bonds, we came out very strongly against these um, because it was, in, in our view, a form of privatization um, by government where the government could just disengage from social service provision and, you know, and turn this into a risk return market for private uh, for private investors. So the, what the social economy, I think, demonstrates is a kind of vulnerability that the more success it demonstrates, the greater the risk that it is captured by a kind of market ideology. And we we have resisted that on the grounds of 
success, you know, demonstrating that shareholder capitalism, we'll call it what it is, has demonstrated its failures, has demonstrated the excessive control over uh, management decisions, over governance within enterprises. These are not possible in in a in a social economy entity where there's one person one vote uh, we don't they are not subjected to the decisions made from outside by by shareholders who have control over these enterprises so just to circle back to what you were saying if we were to do a survey now of so-called social economy entities or social and solidarity economy enterprises we would see many more in a diversity of sectors than we would have seen 10 or 15 years ago when it was very much the social uh, which dominated. And it was in many ways associated with the social market economy or with also the the social enterprise Anglo-American model of disengagement by government and uh, a form of, of privatization of social services. But I, I'm encouraged, um, very encouraged to see young people now in web design, in, uh, in alternative energy enterprises, uh, waste management, um, 3D printing, I mean, you name it. I mean, all these, you know, what we would call high-tech sectors that are cooperatives and not-for-profit enterprises. And I think young people really want to work collectively. I mean, this is a demonstrated uh, reality, at least in the context in which I live. But I will absolutely conclude with you that, you know, we are on the margins. I mean, we are part of a, mm-hmm. a globe, but, but we're pushing. We're, 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 we're pushing towards the center. We have much more recognition for the, for the work of the social and solidarity economy internationally. Uh, um, and I think the fact that you've got, you know, people from the World, Eco- World Economic Forum and, and from major players uh, in, in mainstream uh, economics curious and interested in in what we do is a sign that there's something happening mm-hmm. beyond focusing on the social. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you mentioned the young generation and uh, the new technologies, because um, I think it would be wrong to kind of leave an impression that, like in the case of Quebec, uh, the point is just to, you know, to protect somehow jobs in declining industries, because certainly uh, there's a there's a forward-looking aspect of um, the social economy when it comes to uh, you know responding to social needs which cannot be uh, satisfied uh, through the profit driven enterprise uh, sector and obviously this leads us um, to a little bit more theoretical uh, discussion and i wanted to connect uh, the two sides of your uh, work one on the social economy and the other one uh, regarding uh, the legacy of carpolani because uh, I'm really curious uh, whether you found the work of Polanyi as an inspiration to work on the social economy or vice versa. Uh, what is what is the connection in your case uh, between the, the two? Because uh, um, I, I think basically anybody you speak to uh, who read uh, The Great Transformation or other works of Karl Polanyi, they find it as a major inspiration. You know, some people can draw an inspiration for a whole academic life from from this uh, uh, book. So what was the situation um, in, in your specific case and what could you recommend to our young listeners? 
Well, as you know, the work of Carl Polanyi has been very inspirational for me throughout my academic career, which is now quite long. It's almost, what, half a century, <laughs> you know, that I discovered uh, Carl Polanyi. And I should tell you, it is, you know, doing a doctorate in, in economics uh, in the ni- late 1970s and the early 1980s, I discovered him all by myself on my own. He was not on any syllabus. Um, his Great Transformation was not on any syllabus in any economics course that I took uh, as an undergraduate, as a master's student, or as a PhD student, uh, including economic history and history of economic ideas. I mean, I, I hope that's no longer the case in some economics departments. So uh, for me, uh, theoretically, he has really, uh, or his work has guided me. Um, I'm very fortunate because we created the Carl Polanyi Institute of Political Economy and we have his archive. And um, I discovered fascinating work, which is now well known because many scholars have come to the study the archive and have written books. But his focus, you know, I mean, the Great Transformation is extremely well known. Less known is is some of his earlier work um, in in Austria, in Vienna, and his work on what he called a functional democracy or a functional socialism. And it really, uh, you know, if we fast forward, we could take many of uh, those writings and say, well, these are really the the theoretical backbone of the social and solidarity economy. Pat Devine, many years ago, wrote a book on negotiation planning. I mean, these are terms we don't use anymore. They they sound wooden, they sound old, um, but they're all about about dialogue. They're all about uh, communicating needs and embedding uh, the famous Polanyi term, embedding or re-embedding the economy and society. And so for me, the the social and solidarity economy as a model is exactly that. It is a form of re-embedding the economy in society. If we go back to the UN resolution, where they say that, you know, it is the social and solidarity economy that can achieve the SDGs, the SDGs are socially constructed objectives. Uh, to mm-hmm. save the planet and to contribute to to uh, societal well-being. And then you construct an economy, an economy of provisioning, if we want to use um, Polanyi's terms. And so it goes back and forth. Um, I, I've never been a, um, a deductive theorist. I'm much more of an inductive researcher where I have seen with my own eyes, my observations and and some of the applied research that I've done, that the work we've done, whether it's on microcredit, on new financial tools, um, on business development strategies, on identifying new needs and sectors, it's a a jigsaw puzzle, but the pieces fit very neatly. And when you put the pieces all together, you have an economic model, which is a Polanian model Mm -hmm. of decommodification. And forgive me for using uh, technical terms, but it's Polanyi's uh, main thesis is that, you know, labor, money, land, nature are fictitious commodities. We have turned all these into commodities. The labor market weight, wages are determined through market uh, interactions. Uh, um, money, rather than being a means of exchange, uh, generates, you know, interest and in, in, um, the famous MM prime that we mm-hmm. learned in our in our Marxist economics, land is nature and and can cannot and should not be commodified. If we look at all, if we look at the wide spectrum of the social and solidarity economy, the labor labor co- worker cooperatives is, is a key example of the decommodification of labor, where there are fair wages, decent work, and and so on, and bonuses and all sorts of monetary um, remuneration that 
that we would find in the private economy, but these are not subjected to, you know, market market forces. Uh, money, I, we don't. We, we saw the the impact of the 2008-2009 financial crisis, and we see that in the social finance sector that we have created us and and others in other parts of the world that there is a rate of return um, which is viable um, and allows for reinvestment uh, into social and solidarity economy entities. But we don't have speculative returns. We, we don't have the ability to play the markets um, uh, and generate returns uh, on, on money uh, itself. Land and nature, well, we, we don't even need to discuss you know, the, the impact of the commodification of, of nature and, and the planetary crisis um, that we face. And there are plenty of examples in, in, in Europe and, and elsewhere of, um, of land trusts, uh, more and more land trusts uh, that exist, or cooperatives in energy. Um, I mean, in Europe, there are wonderful examples, I think, of Denmark, a country that I've looked at quite closely on renewable energy and, and the role of cooperatives. So these are all initiatives that are, you know, this is a kind of circular um, response. Yes, the work of Carl Polanyi is very inspirational because it's so rich in its understanding of the impact of market forces um, on societal well-being. But then we see these initiatives that are actually playing out a Polanyian agenda, so to speak reinforcing his call to re-embed the economy in society through these lived realities. So what I used to say to my students was that, you know, social and solidarity economy is theorizing itself, uh, mm -hmm. in, you know, as it, as it evolves. On the question of young people, I was just in Dakar in Senegal for a, so a global social economy forum. There were over 6,000 people and there was an entire day devoted to youth. And there were, I think, 2,000 young people from all over the world. It was remarkable. And what they uh, what they said at the end was, don't have a special day devoted to us, please. Um, we are your future. And we should be, you know, they weren't excluded from the rest of the conference, obviously. But we, there was a day on women and there was a day on, on, on youth. And both women and youth said, there's no reason to have these uh, separate days. We are all you know, working towards the same uh, objectives, which are to democratize the economy or to decommodify, if we want to use Polanyian terms. And one, one last issue I think I want to just raise about Polanyi, which was for me a huge surprise and has been very inspirational, and I quote it all the time. And that's in a lesser read book, uh, which was published posthumously, The Livelihood of Man where he talks about agency and that we have to we have to fight fatally there, there's no fatalism about how this how societies will evolve there is agency human beings have agency and and i think this is this is what we've experienced in the social and solidarity economy around the world the capacity the courage of people to stand up and say well we can do this in a, we can do this differently uh, we can do this collectively, um, and we do not have to respond to market impulses, but we need to be viable. We need to be profitable, and I put that in quotes because the profits are reinvested uh, mm -hmm. in the social and solidarity economy. We need to offer decent work, decent wages. We need financial tools, business development tools. We need public policy that enables a social economy. I think that we, we are all very much on a Polanyian journey. 
Thank you so much. I think this is an excellent uh, closure of um, our conversation. You gave us a lot in terms of practical examples, but also the theory of uh, the social economy, how it, uh, how the concept is embedded in uh, political economy. And uh, originally, I wanted to focus on the transatlantic comparison, but you also stretched it to Africa uh, with the latest um, example. And I think um, this just shows um, that any discussion on sustainable development and social cohesion must put the question of uh, the social economy into the center because there are a lot more opportunities than many people would think about and many examples which um, we can explore together. Thank you very much for your time. And You're welcome. It's a pleasure. Really a pleasure. Exactly. There are many points we can still come back again, including mm -hmm. Polanyi legacy, but also the practice of uh, public policy. Thank you, Laszlo. Thank you very much for the invitation. It was a pleasure.